Welcome to episode 31 of the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn here. 31 episodes. I know, right? Wow. I hit 30 in Britney's (laughs) attic last week or two weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, you're getting into the attic episodes. It's pretty good. (laughs) Well, uh, today we're not in the movie attic. Uh, We're behind the Ghost of the Old Rock and Bowl at James's place. Uh, We are, once again, the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. Coming from New Orleans, Louisiana. James, it's been a month since we talked about movies on a microphone. <laughs> Have you seen anything particularly good in those last four weeks? Honestly, all I can think of right now are these goddamn Russian movies <laughs> we had to watch for this episode. Have you seen anything? I might. Yeah, I have a few things I could talk about. Um, I actually took your recommendation from the last time we talked and watched Casting John Bonet on mm-hmm. Netflix, which is that sort of like strange meta documentary on the Jean Benet Ramsey case, except that it's really about the case's impact on the community around it and like national headlines at right. large. They have all these like people trying out to play the parts of the Ramseys and you learn more about their conspiracy theories and like their feelings on what happened than any like facts. So it's right. kind of like those uh, Rodney Asher docs I like so much, like Room Turtle 37 and uh, what's it called? The Nightmare? Nightmare, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of reminded me of what we talked about last time, Swagger too, where it's just like a very like highly stylized, more like subjective opinion over like hard fact kind of documentary. And I'm really into those just in general. There's been so many documentaries like about the facts of the case. It's kind of been done to death. I'd be surprised if someone could make a JonBenet Ramsey documentary, like a real true crime documentary about it, and actually have people talk about it as much as this. Like, this seems like one of the only interesting takes you could possibly have on that case at this time. Well, it's so many years after the case, too. Like, it's really just about the impact Mm -hmm. the case. Not Because that's all these big cases, like with OJ, and there's a Rodney King documentary thing out on netflix that's really good too that's kind of similar but it's just like yeah that's what becomes important is like the cultural impact yeah even that oj doc that won the oscar i feel like i haven't seen it but uh, from what i heard about a lot of it seems like it's um about like race relations in america and what the case meant same thing with that rodney king thing that just got put on netflix yeah which is really good too but with the john Monet thing it's just so surreal especially like the end the the last 10 minutes really make the movie something special. Like, I was into it the whole time. I thought it was, like, a really strange idea, and it was really fascinating to watch it come together. But mm-hmm. the last 10 minutes are something that makes it, like, almost, like, transcendent art. Like, it becomes, like, this weird, like, dreamlike reflection on, like, how fake movies are and, like, how memories of somebody sort of, like, distracts you from, like, who they really were. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like with the Ramses and, like, with all these, like, tabloid pieces, you sort of forget that you're talking about human beings. Right. So, like, to have all these, like, real-life people now reenact them, it sort of, like, brings all that persona back down to, like, a human level. And then the movie does something even weirder with it in the last, like, ten minutes. But yeah, I really liked that recommendation. It was good. Cool. I'm glad you liked it. The other 2017 movie I saw was Alien Covenant, the new Ridley Scott movie. I've heard mixed things. Has there ever been an Alien movie that doesn't have mixed reviews? Like, every single sequel has people, like, so strongly opinionated about what it did to the series. Well, I just heard it doesn't quite fit into the canon of the rest 
the alien movies like it doesn't play by the same rules or like it's a direct sequel to prometheus like it starts 10 years after prometheus and picks up on that timeline and a lot of people hated prometheus i really like it it's actually my favorite alien sequel because it's such a weird ass movie Mm -hmm. uh, that deviates from alien like you're saying like it doesn't fit in with the timeline like alien from 79 is like a perfect horror film i don't need to see it remade 10 times with like new numbers slapped on them like i want people to kind of be blasphemous to the series this one's not as good as prometheus in my opinion but it's really fun to watch michael fassbender play like this almost cruella Deville level villain he does some really weird almost campy kind of stuff in this film that i feel like makes it worth watching in itself and there's some like basic horror film creature attacks uh, almost like slasher level like stalking where the xenomorph like hangs out in the background and like strikes Almost mm-hmm. like Jason Voorhees or something. I mean, those are always going to be fun to watch a horror movie with that stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make it memorable. Uh, Michael Fassbender is like a joy to watch in Alien Covenant. I could see people complaining about like individual aspects of the movie because people seem to be very particular about their Alien sequels. Mm-hmm. But if you respect Michael Fassbender at all, like you have to see this movie. Cool. It's probably yeah. his weirdest role since Frank, honestly. And Frank is a pretty out there film. I can't really name many mainstream hollywood like villains from the past like 10 years that are half as weird as this performance is i think you would like it just for him like he's fun to watch i know he's definitely like one of my favorite actors out right now i definitely want to check that out not that it's related to alien at all but jogging my memory of what i saw recently i recently watched bridget jones's diary the first one yeah okay it's really good i don't know like i have this soft spot for romantic comedies. I don't know, like, I'm a sucker for When Harry Met Sally and Notting Hill and even, like, Pretty Woman. And and I would put it up there in the, like, upper echelon. Really? Yeah, it's, like, totally funny and charming. You know, Hugh Grant, he always plays the charming, like, douchebag. Or he, like, goes between those two, like, really charming or, like, really slimy. And this one, he's definitely more the slimy. Because he's, like, got that posh British, like, kind of uptight attitude. It's sort of, like, he he feels, like, superior to people. You can kind of, like, feel it, like, coming through his dialogue. Yeah, and it's also, like, knowing his, you know, history, like, the whole scandal with picking up a prostitute Mm -hmm. in the 90s. Kind of a slimy guy. It's fun to see him play around with that. But Renee Zellweger is, like, very adorable. And, like, it's a lot of, like, you, like, cringing at her. Like, she, in the movie, she has this tendency to, like, talk too much and just, like, dig her own grave, kind of. And Mm -hmm. it's just funny seeing her in these, like, social social situations and just saying, like, the total wrong thing. And it's just, like, very episodic. Like, it's just really funny. It's probably been, like, a good decade since I've seen it, but I I remember it starting off really dark. Uh, It starts with, like, heavy drinking and depression and, like, body image issues and, like, which... Kind of weirded me out when I saw the trailer for the new one, which looked very light. It was about a pregnancy scare, but it didn't seem like it was indulging in the same like dark tendencies as the first one did. Yeah, um, th- this one definitely touches on her alcoholism and her just like self destructiveness. But no, it, it was really good. I would say if you're a fan of romantic comedies and you somehow haven't seen it, like I had never seen it, I just ran and was like, why haven't I seen this movie? So I watched. I was like very into it. Would you watch a sequel? I do want to see the sequel now. <laughs> <laughs> I, just to check it out. I mean, I don't know. It's probably. I thought not Colin as good. Firth was in it. I didn't think it was Hugh Grant. He is. Uh, they're both well, there. he plays the like the real love interest, but uh, she like okay. is more into like Hugh Grant in the beginning. But it's been too long. Comes around. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind re- revisiting that. Like, I don't have any, like, negative energy for that movie. No, Other than, it's like, fun. Watching the trailers from the new one, like, it could have just been a poorly cut trailer, too. Like, that's not even saying the movie's bad. <laughs> the cat just fell off the table. <laughs> <laughs> I only have one more movie to recommend. It's from 1929. And I'm only bringing it up because I want you specifically to see it. It's called The Man with a Movie Camera. It's this, like, experimental silent film where this guy just takes a camera actually probably two cameras all over different cities in soviet russia Mm -hmm. um and uses all these like then experimental film styles so like there's these drastic dutch angles and like overlaid images and tracking shots and just things that hadn't really been done as much at the time and there's like this experimental editing Hmm. um it came out a few years after a page of madness which we've talked about on here yeah Uh, that was that blew me away this one has a similar energy it's like very rapid fire there's no story to it which is kind of what makes it like an avant-garde feature as well like there's Mm -hmm. no narrative other than it sort of quote-unquote documenting what cities looked like at the time but really the guy's just fucking around with like how interesting you can make an image and what is like pure cinema with no narrative uh and he had all these like philosophies about um how cinema had become too dependent on like novels and stage plays and like it's a new art form so it doesn't have to have that linear narrative to it yeah Uh, so it's interesting to watch someone in the 20s reach for that kind of thing that you see in people like i don't know like david lynch and jonathan glazer like where you're sort of like breaking the form of like what a regular movie is but this one has a very high energy to it it's not like the slow burn art, mm-hmm. art movies that we're kind of used to in the 2010s like it's a very fast-paced uh ridiculous imagery of just like machines and like the camera as a machine and then the man operating the camera as a machine it feels like that is still like a struggle in cinema like those films still don't really get acknowledged in the same way like if you talk about like an experimental or like an art house kind of film it still plays by certain rules Mm -hmm. i guess and there's very few movies that get like wide distribution now that you could really call like experimental it's not even usually something i particularly like seek out like that avant-garde like breaking the form uh Mm -hmm. kind of stuff but um i don't know when you see it in the 20s uh with someone like pushing the medium to a new height like you have to kind of respect it just in that basic level i don't think this is quite as good as a page of madness but it's got the same energy and it's also like similarly short it's like a 70 minute movie and it's something you can probably borrow from any library uh it's totally worth watching no i'll definitely check that out um and the reason i borrowed that from the library is because today we're talking about movies about russian history and it seemed like oh this is a documentary of like russian cities at the time but that's not quite what we're doing here we're looking at movies that look back to like russian past right they don't even have to be russian films like we're doing one dr zhivago which is an american no it's a british italian british italian okay well not russian though right it's not a russian film but yeah these are movies that are looking back to like to russia's past and like russia's heritage um and this is sort of a continuation of our last episode that you and i did together when we talked about um french film fest Mm -hmm. and andre tarkovsky's uh stalker right so today we're gonna be looking at two tarkovsky movies that deal with russian history along with uh three other sort of important ones and we're also gonna be talking about this movie girlhood which came up in the conversation last time and i'll explain that a little more in a minute and all that's coming up to you right right now. now those groups of girls that i was Passing by in the, street, in the streets, their energy, their charisma, uh, the fact that they were in the public space, like it was a theater scene and that they were already actresses and that they were already um, characters. Whereas I think that the collective makes them stronger, they are a team and they can 
uh, express themselves as individuals because they're together. Um, and I want to really wanted to talk about the virtue of the group and um, the virtue of friendship. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. This time, it was my pick. I got to make James watch a movie that just made my top films of 2015 list. I think I had this in the honorable mention slot at like 21 or something, Hmm. but I couldn't let it go. It's called Girlhood, directed by Celine Sciamma, also who directed Tomboy, which is kind of an infamous indie movie from the past few years. And she wrote the screenplay from My Life as a Zucchini, which I saw at French Film Fest this year. That was partly the reason this movie came up, was that I was thinking about it because of My Life as a Zucchini. But also, you and I had gone to see a movie called Swagger, which right. is a documentary about life from these like Senegal and like Indian immigrants to French housing projects that were like living outside of Paris. Uh, and this movie was a more narrative representation of what that life meant. Whereas you were kind of frustrated when we watched Swagger that it didn't really give any kind of context to what these kids' daily lives were. Right. And I was like, oh, you need to see Girlhood because that context is like covered in another film. Um, did you, do you feel like you got that fleshed out a little bit for no, you? That, yeah, totally. That's kind of what I was getting at with my criticism of Swagger was like I wanted to get to know these people more. Girlhood, I really felt like you see the main character go through like all these changes But you really feel like you understand her and like why she's doing the things that she does. And so in that way, it was a much more like intimate portrayal of like adolescence. Basically what I I thought was missing from Swagger. Right. For me. And this is a more straightforward narrative for sure. Two more recent films it reminded me of uh, because you get a stoic like black main character who's sort of like dealing with the bullshit that's like thrown at them in this sort Mm -hmm. of like lyrical poetic way. Uh, Moonlight and The Fits. The Fits for sure sure was like really I kept going back to that movie. Yeah. So if you appreciated like that sort of personal but quiet perspective from either of those films i think that you would probably latch on to how it's done in girlhood as well um even though this is set in france and not in america like those other two movies are Mm -hmm. i don't want to jump straight into the plot outright i think starting with how the movie opens is more important because this is what really like grabbed my attention yeah it has a great opening scene with the uh female football team right you start with french girls playing american football in these like you know one of those like high school stadiums by themselves and these beautiful like almost m83 kind of synths come in and it feels like the ending of an 80s movie as opposed to like the opening of a 2010s movie it's got this like epic like emotional swell you know i mean that's definitely a highlight for me was the score was very like you say ambient electronic just very moody synths and strings like you get like the the grand like synth element plus like this emotional orchestra coming in and the guy the guy who does it his name is para one and the only like other movie credits i could see because i was actually trying to figure out if it was the guy from m83 Mm because it sounds like so similar he also did tomboy and like two other movies with the director of girlhood so like He's a close collaborator with her, the same as the cinematographer, which is another aspect of this movie that should be mentioned is just the lighting and the framing of everything is just fucking gorgeous in this movie. Well, and the lighting, what really struck me was like the way 
you have these like beautiful like black actors the way with the lighting they're a lot of times put under like really strong blue lighting or the skin is just highlighted in a certain way like there's one scene in particular where uh Miriam, the main character like her love interest she finally decides you know she wants to like sleep with him and she kind of orders him to take his clothes off and he does and then they slowly reveal like his buttocks but it's like the way the light hits like the really dark black skin it, yeah. it was just like beautiful I, like, I think a lot of people have complained about that lately is that like black actors have been lit wrong because they're lit as if their skin were white mm-hmm. like it's like a one size fits all kind of cinematography and that's kind of why moonlight was on my mind while i was watching this right it's just that this movie has a way of making like that skin tone look fucking gorgeous Gor- yeah in a way that most movies sort of underserve like it's specifically paying attention to how different colored lights can be reflected off the skin tone in a way that like feels instantly like high art i mean it's interesting too because like i think historically it was seen as attractive that you had lighter skin tone right like if you look closer to a white person that was more attractive and if you're really really black then that scene is not there's a socially impressed prejudice to that for sure but in this movie like most of the characters have very like strong very black they're second generation african immigrants to these like french housing projects so they're like not a mixed culture they're not an integrated culture like they're still trying to find their footing in france they're basically being locked out of integrating in that way and the the lighting and everything just like really highlights like how beautiful they are and that was really refreshing to see when you know like i said the history of hollywood and like who decides like what is beautiful and when it's put in like that kind of lighting you're just like yeah this is fucking high art like and you get that as soon as that first scene where you're watching these girls play football and the movie even calls in questions of gender as soon as that first scene because you don't necessarily know that these are young women playing football like it could be a mixed um i thought it was mixed at first yeah honestly i was like because they're heavily padded and they're wearing these like huge like helmets and everything it's kind of like obscures their bodies um so the movie knows exactly what it's doing in these opening segments where you see girls clashing violently on the field but in this sort of like celebratory empowering way they're fighting each other but as soon as like the game is over they all congratulate and shake hands and they're like smiling like they're beaming these smiles where they're like in probably the most exuberant you'll see anybody in this movie is in this like first 30 30 seconds yeah and then what i think is so powerful about this opening is the girls had that celebratory celebratory moment and then they start walking back to their housing blocks And as their numbers dwindle and as drug lookouts who are all male start to infiltrate their like all female um, collective, Mm -hmm. they get quiet, their smiles disappear, all the like celebratory swell of the synths and the violins that all fades away. And you get to see like, oh, when they're together, they're this like powerful force. And then when they go home, they all have like fathers and brothers that like are basically tyrants in their own houses who like tell them what they can and can't do and like who they can be and what options they have for their future and that's basically the whole movie in a nutshell in this like first two minutes right and like her character too goes through that transformation she starts 
being really shy and kind of like, you know, quiet, uh, maybe a little naive. And as we see through the course of the film, she really becomes like strong and empowered and like vocal. And I love that the way the movie, you know, other movies have done this thing where like a shy, innocent girl or boy gets involved in a gang and it corrupts them. They get into like hard drugs and prostitution or something. And this movie doesn't really do that. It feels more honest in the way that it portrays what a gang is actually about. Like most gangs is just like people that don't really, I don't know, there's like strength and numbers. numbers. Yeah. They're like empowering each other to like be strong. They do like a little bit of shoplifting and maybe they'll there's like... a couple fist fights. Yeah, fist fight, but that's like... A lot of talking shit, but like nothing to back it up really. Like they're right. just teenagers. Right, and that feels like... So much more realistic to me than some other portrayals of teen gangs where it just goes like totally off in this like dark area. This actually shows like why people get involved in gangs. It's really to just feel like you're part of a community. Well, yeah, and that's what you get in that opening minute with the football team is like them like as a community. Uh, Like these these young girls who like are figuring out amongst themselves without outside influence. Um, and basically, early in the film, Mary M gets kicked out of school, and she has this brother at home that breaks up the sisterhood she has with her actual sisters in the house, where they, they can't express and be themselves and have that same strength, because there is, like, this tyrant in the house who, like, physically abuses them. Yeah. Um, so she gets kicked out of school, she has this asshole at home who's, like, physically threatening her and her sisters, and basically, her mother wants her to work as a hotel like maid at night. And none of these have any of that empowering impact. The movie, I don't speak French, um, so I might, might, might be murdering this pronunciation, but the, the real title of the film is Bond de Fee, which is like Gang of Girls, mm-hmm. which is a much better title of the girl- the Girlhood. When I first heard that, I immediately thought of the link letter film boyhood Boyhood. and this came out the same year as boyhood so i think that might have been a marketing decision and a really fucking stupid one stupid one because it's totally different and honestly like i think it's a better film Uh, it's like 10 times than boyhood (laughs) like even though boyhood might have taken a decade or whatever to make so a couple things i wanted to mention from what you were talking about like First of all, that scene with um, her and her like guidance counselor who's telling her, like, no, you have to go into... Trade school. Trade school. You can't go to high school. And she's like 15. They're basically like, your academic career is over. It's over. But kind of in the same vein of like swagger, the camera, we never see the counselor. Like, it always stays fixed on her. And the fits as well. Where right. you see, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but Royalty, Royalty Hightower... Mm-hmm. That's a name you don't forget. But uh, when you watch her face, like the whole movie is about her reacting. And right. Her, like, you never going... see the the adults. Right. They're always like outside. Like there's some other. Even entity. the mother who wants um, Mary M to go into like housekeeping. Uh, we might see her for like two minutes in the whole movie. But see, with it's more about Mary M's like personal navigation of that. But conflict. with the um, with the housekeeping thing, you know, she eventually gets offered the job. And then she strong arms the lady into basically not giving it to her because she doesn't want to be a freaking maid. And that brings up another theme in this movie, which is kind of the cycle of abuse, which is really sad because you see like her brother beating on her for like getting out of line. And then eventually when she becomes strong and empowered, she does the same thing to her younger Sister. sister when she sees her running with this gang and she slaps her and the sister is just like... 
like, what are you doing? Like, you're just like our brother. That is like a really sad moment in the movie. But that's like how that shit works, dude. It's like when you've been beaten down and terrorized, you end up doing it and that, to other people. That thematic element is so well represented in the cin- cinematography. Like you see um, in one shot, she goes to her gang leader and her gang leader's in the bathtub and she sits next to her and her gang leader dons her with a new name. Like you're not Maryam anymore, you're Vic, as in victory. And she puts a necklace around her neck. Mm-hmm. The exact same framing of her sitting facing away from her brother and like almost the exact next scene, he wraps his arm around her neck and strangles her and is like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? You can't join a gang and like leave me alone with your sisters and turn your phone off. Like I am in control here. Mm-hmm. And you get such a strong communication of like the empowerment versus like the abuse just in the framing of the exact same exchange between two different influences in her life. And what we get immediately after the scene you're talking about where her counselor tells her, you are going to have to go to trade school, like your academic life is over even though you're 15. She walks outside and immediately there's the gang of three girls Mm -hmm. who are just kind of hanging out and doing jack shit because they have the same situation as her. Like they have no prospects on what to do with their lives. So all they do is like, hang around and talk to boys or they'll go to the mall and talk shit about people's fashion choices or they'll start petty fist fights with like rival gangs or like there's a scene later where they run into the former fourth girl mm-hmm. in the group who is now pregnant like, had a yeah she had a child yeah cycles is definitely a, a theme that keeps but what coming I, up in this what i think is so powerful about this movie is that cycle is not spoken aloud like it's not explain to you in a verbal dialogue like when you see the girl that she's replacing and has had a child you just sort of meet her you get her idea who she mm-hmm. is then she fi- kind of find out that Vic slash Miriam has sort of replaced her in the gang and that's it like you just have to like understand the context of that cycle and then moves on like the movie doesn't dwell on it in any like thematic way it's all visual um and just all part of like them hanging out and the the biggest thing in the movie to me is this one sort of music video aside that's definitely the highlight it's a centerpiece like kind of like in the red shoes we get the like 15 minute like ballet piece like or i was thinking too like in the fits that lasts like five minutes where it turns into kind of a music video yeah well in this case you get four girls in shoplifted dresses drinking jack and coke out of the two liter bottle right (laughs) and they're singing in completion from front to end rihanna's diamonds and I fucking weep every time I watch this scene. It's beautiful. It's it really so beautiful. Is. I think the first time I saw it might have been in David Ehrlich's countdown video for that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does these like t- top twenty countdowns where it's just like a sort of like mix of like everything that happened that year in film. And even completely divorced from the movie, not even recognizing what it was from, I still like cried watching it. Uh, there's just something so powerful about them coming together and like burning fast and bright in this moment, even though their lives are. Well, be, are being stifled by their opportunities. But see that that's just like later on they talk about there's a line like what are your perfect moments kind of like that to me was like a perfect moment for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of moment where you maybe five, ten years from now, she'll think back on that group of friends and like that's the thing that's gonna resonate. It's like that time we were dancing in the hotel room to diamonds. The time she actually cites is when they go to Disney World, which I guess the movie couldn't afford the rights to them actually going to Disney World France, but it's the same kind of thing. She just, like, 
she reflects on a time where she watched her crew walk ahead of her and they were just happy and together. Yeah. Uh, And it's like a fucking travesty that the world they're in won't let them just be like happy girls together without like male influence. Early in this conversation, you cited that Maryam takes losing her virginity into her own hands. And there's a boy she's crushing on. Mm-hmm. She goes to his apartment and by herself and basically makes him strip so she can like admire his body. Uh, for a movie with all these like girls who are like into violence and all these like kind of like teenage discretions. Right. There's only one nude scene and it's like a male's butt. Uh, and she gazes yeah. at the man's ass. And then she loses her virginity her way. It would be, like, a really empowering moment, but there's so many of these, like, outside societal, like, masculine patriarchy, like, aspects to her life that it fucking ruins her. She gets branded a slut for having sex as a teenager. What's kind of messed up about her brother in the film is, like, he's very violent and threatening, Until he finds out, like, oh, she beat up a girl. Now you're, like, one of us. Like, now you you can play video games with me. And it's totally, like, a manipulative way to, like, deal with your sibling. He's encouraging her to be violent, but not to be a sexual autonomous person. Right, like, I'm gonna be super pissed at you for sleeping with this guy I know, but you beat this chick up and that's awesome. Like, sending, like, mixed messages like that, which does kind of lead to one thing I wanted to bring up because that kind of leads to the third act of the film where she decides to move out and basically like she becomes a drug dealer she starts um, presenting masculine so she binds her breasts and gets these tight cornrows Uh, yeah like at first glance you wouldn't see that as someone who identifies as female um but she's like protecting herself in this drug dealing world by like de-emphasizing her feminine aspects and sort of being one of the boys who just deals drugs and that's what the third act really is is her navigating that I don't know if you felt the same way, but for me, the third act is where it kind of loses some steam a little bit. This is the exact reason why this was my honorable mention for for 2015. Mm-hmm. I had, like I said, I had it at like 21, which 21 fucking favorite movies of the year is like kind of an indulgent list anyway. But I felt like including it was like because there's so much of this movie that's just so, so gorgeous, I- and you can't ignore the power of, like I said, like the diamond scene or like there's just scenes of them dancing in a square. But it, it does loses some it loses something towards the end. I can see why narratively you need that drama to like say like oh even though these girls are a powerful influence in her life when she's around them it's a fleeting power and she can't live in this society in France proper like Paris is not accessible to her as a immigrant or a daughter of an immigrant. Like, she's been locked out, so she has no options. All she can do is burn fast and bright, enjoy those, like, diamonds-type moments, but then she's going to have to go into a life of, like, terrible compromises. And the the third act is a series of compromises, which is always going to be less fun to watch than somebody actually enjoying themselves. That, that's where it just felt like it went into the standard territory of, like, now she's in with the kingpins, mm-hmm. and they're going to try to, like, impose themselves on her sexually. And, and then she, at the end, she comes back around to wanting to be with her family, and I wish... At the end, she would have, like, went back with her group of friends or, like... We don't know what she does at the end of the movie. And that's, that's like, a good thing. It is ambiguous. Yeah, which is good. Because the movie, even though I fucking hate the girlhood title, I think it's a terrible title, it does contextualize her narrative arc as just her in her adolescent stage. 
between dropping out of high school at the beginning and deciding to not continue as a drug dealer at the end, she's moving on into some kind of adulthood that we don't know what she's going to do, but it doesn't really matter because that's not what the movie's about. So I do like the movie left it ambiguous, but honestly, it could have ended earlier for me. Like, it could have ended with the gang getting back together after the couple, like, offsets they they lose. Because, like, that four-girl friendship is, like, really the most important part of this and the part that will make me cry no matter how many times I watch this Mm -hmm. is watching these four girls like find power in each other that's lost once the other three girls go away and she's sort of forced to like live the world by herself where I thought it could have ended for me was when her love interest proposes marriage basically Mm -hmm. like I'll I'll marry you tomorrow you'll be my wife you know and then she kind of says like no I don't want that yeah that's not the life I want like, that seemed like an empowering... Like, you were talking about there's all these kind of negative male influences, and then that seemed like the perfect moment for her to finally stand up and be like, yeah, even though I love you and, you know, you're offering me this, like, stereotypical life where I'll just be a housewife and whatever, like, I don't want that shit. And that's just one of a series of compromises she's not willing to make, right? Like, yeah. she won't go to vocational school, she won't be a maid, she won't... Uh, do sex work, which is part of the reason she masculinizes her, her body, even though she doesn't like identify male. She doesn't want to succumb to anyone else's like vision of what she should be. Right. Because once she gets a taste of the girl gang and like freedom and like actually deciding for herself, there's no way to go back. Like she knows. She doesn't know who she is, but she knows what it feels like to make decisions for herself all of a sudden. And mm. that's a hard, hard fucking freedom to give up um, just to make someone else happy or to like fit in someone else's like idea of what she should pursue. And I think, too, like that's what the movie does a really good job of portraying is... Like, adolescence isn't, like, these corrupting forces and you just can go off the deep end and this or that. Like, it's more about trying on different hats and, like, different identities. And that's what she's doing and that's really what being a teenager is about is like i'm gonna maybe i want to be this kind of person like let me try this out maybe i want to be a part of this female gang or maybe i want to be this like independent drug dealer or maybe you know just trying different things out and seeing what what sticks like that's what actually like being a young person she even like experiments with their sexuality a little bit towards the end as well yeah Um, like flirting with like Women. Women and, yeah. But that ending is good. Even though we're kind of, like, ragging in the last, like, 20, 30 minutes of the movie, the ending still feels powerful in that way because we don't see her land on an identity. It still feels open at the end. Mm -hmm. And we don't get to know what decisions she makes about what she does with her life. But it really doesn't matter because it's more about, like, what you're saying. Where, like, that stuff all shifts when you're a certain age. um, And you're... Identity is very fluid. Try to, like, imagine a world where we got, like, a sequel to Girlhood. Like... What happens after. Yeah. But it's kind of like imagining what happens after Moonlight. Right. right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to know. It's not important. Also, I'll say, I think part of what ruins the latter half of the movie and what makes this movie and Swagger, like, so interesting is getting an intimate glimpse into what life in these, like, housing projects outside France, which are fucking vast. Like, there's Mm -hmm. so many of these, like, tall ugly concrete buildings kind of like that dorm we used to live in Um, (laughs) yeah there's this intimate glimpse in these buildings and this cinematographer does a great job of making it look beautiful like there's just like kind of pastel voids she finds in there where like they're kind of floating in space 
Um, there's a scene where she kisses the boy who she eventually... And then the lights go out. The lights go out while That's they're making so out. Great. So they find a beauty in it, but there's something about representing that thing that we've never seen before that's very interesting and then later when she becomes a drug dealer and she's drifting in and out of these parties and like you said it becomes more of a straightforward like crime movie it, that perspective is lost a little bit and it's a little dulled but you know this is like a two-hour movie sort of like i think the problem is that it just comes at the end so much of this movie is so good but whenever something ends and it's like weakest point you kind of feel less high on it you're yeah. left with like a sour taste a little bit right it, it feels a little front loaded mm-hmm. with the football scene and the diamond like that comes pretty early yeah on but regardless dude i i really i really like this movie this is a good recommendation it. yeah after swagger when i heard you saying what you wanted from swagger i was like oh i've seen that movie um, right this felt like it fit the bill yeah and well and like the fits too like i'd put it right up there in the same echelon yeah i guess well, if you do want to see this movie, it is on Netflix. Um, it has been on Netflix for a couple of years, so it might not be going anywhere anytime soon. But don't wait on it. It's, like, really worth watching. And after hearing, like, so much praise for The Fits and Moonlight in the past year, I feel like this movie deserves to be in that conversation. Right. And I really enjoyed uh, My Life as a Zucchini as well. Like, I feel like this director is probably someone that we should pay attention to. Her name's uh, Celine Sciamma. Um, yeah, and I definitely want to see... Um, I heard a lot about her earlier. Tom Tomboy is Tomboy, yeah. Yeah, Tomboy is about a young like trans boy, I think. I haven't seen okay. it, but um just seeing a couple like images from it, it looks like it's on the same like cinematographer level. And it has the same cinematographer as this movie, so maybe we All should right. maybe we should check it out as well. Definitely. Are you the poet? Yes. I used to admire your poetry. Thank you. I shouldn't admire it now. I should find it absurdly personal. Don't you agree? Feelings, insights, affections, it's suddenly trivial now. You don't agree. You're wrong. The personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. And now it's time for our feature conversation. This week we are going to be talking about five films that look back to russian history it's gonna sound a little dry saying that out loud but there's some very lyrical and very like humorous movies in this batch like i said in the intro we went down this rabbit hole because we watched andre tarkovsky's infamous art piece stalker last Mm -hmm. episode and we were just wanted to see a couple more tarkovsky movies and he had a couple high profile movies that dealt with like russian past and it's kind of interesting to think about what movies do that it seems like there's a higher percentage of like russian films that deal with russian history that have like an artistic bent to them where it's not like straight didactic nature Um, i don't know if i can say that about american history like i can't think of any like super artsy films that deal with like america's past it's usually like more of like a straightforward war narrative yeah or you think of like a i don't know like a 12 years a slave or that's true i mean there are some but i i see what you're saying like basically when you have movies about american history they tend to be like about the history and the facts kind of and from what we've seen with the films about russian history maybe because it has such a longer more intricate kind of history that it's hard to like lay out the facts like this happened and this happened because these aren't classroom movies like no we are going to start with dr Chivago from 1965 this was the one i was honestly dreading the most 
totally a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. It's like it's like a three hour like bloated epic, kind of like a Lawrence of Arabia or something. Well, it's, it's the same director as Lawrence of oh, Arabia. I didn't even know that. But yeah, it's like a super expensive production. It's a British Italian co production. Mm-hmm. It's this like epic romance that goes through two wars, uh, the Russian Civil War and then World War One. It's three hours. It's got a like a uh, overture and an intermission. Like it just yeah. seems like so much to handle. But it it, it kind of reminds me of just the few Russian novels I've read, like Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like that. It's just all these different characters over years and years of time. And like, there's a historical backdrop and just so totally epic in scope. And yeah, kind of expecting that going into, I was like, God, this is going to, and seeing the running time too. When you see like a movie is three and a half hours, you're kind of preparing for the worst. Yeah. We talked about it a minute ago. Like, lyricism seems to be like a uh, running theme through all these movies like there's a kind of a poetic nature to everything we watched Mm -hmm. and that carried on through here which i didn't expect but also just long ass run times and like depressive tone uh, Mm -hmm. is a common theme in all of these and it makes sense there's like a lot of war and like bitter cold and just like poverty and struggle like a lot of class struggle right Uh, So it makes sense that these would be, like, depressive movies. But when you watch, like, a bunch of movies in a row and multiple entries are, like, three hours and, like, super sad, like, it's hard to, like, get amped up to do it. This one, I felt, went by very quickly considering that runtime, though. That's the first thing I wanted to say about it was the... The editing in this film, I think, is, like, one of the greatest examples of, like, artistic, like, great editing that, um, basically, yeah, it makes the film fly by and it makes it move in a way that some of the other ones that we had to watch, they have the same runtime but feel so much slower. There was a lot of, like, cool transitions, like, you have a character, for example, tell another character, like, Merry Christmas, and then they'll cut to the next scene and a character, a different character is responding saying like, thank you, Merry Christmas as a way to transition. So that, that like dialogue carrying over uh, and same thing with like certain shots that would transition to the next like scene. All of that was like very well done. And I don't know, that's something I really appreciated about it. I will agree that the editing is very like efficient and moves things along in a, like a very decisive way. But honestly, the first thing that jumps out at me when I think back to watching Shivago is just how fucking gorgeous this film is. Oh yeah, that like, too. The color, the like framing, the mass scope of just all these extras, like hundreds of people in these like hugely staged scenes like it's a a physical feat to get the cinematography of this movie down um there's this one shot in particular of a russian palace that's been abandoned because it's the people who occupied it have been locked out by the revolution um and they go back in a few years and everything inside is frozen over Mm -hmm. in this like pristinely like iced over way and it is seriously one of the most gorgeous shots i've ever seen in a movie i could watch that forever and never get bored of it like i said uh, if i'm not mistaken this director also did lawrence of arabia which Mm -hmm. is similar like grand in scope tons of extras and to be able to like pull off that kind of production i I can't imagine like there's so many moving parts yeah in this thing to be able to keep it all under control like it really does feel like epic in the truest sense of the word and usually when directors go for that scale like it blows up in their face like the budget will get too big or like there'll be some kind of like delay or disaster like a ishtar i just watched ishtar this week and it's a it's actually a pretty good comedy i think it's reputation is kind of bullshit but it definitely got out of elaine may's hands like she did not hold it together quite as well as like dr Zhivago, which is twice as long and like 
twice as um, like full of itself almost. Like it, mm-hmm. the movie knows that it's an important picture, and you can feel that like strain to like make something grand and epic, right? But it doesn't feel forced. Like it's actually like a legitimate art piece. To bring up the like historical aspect too, I don't think that that's really the main like thrust of this film. Like mm-hmm. it seems like the Russian historical stuff is actually like the backdrop. It's more like about the characters. It's, I don't know. I read the Roger Ebert review for this and he mentioned uh, how it's similar with like Gone with the Wind in that way. Like, like it could be a political movie, like trying to make a point about the revolution and good or bad, but that's not really, I think, the main point of this film. Like it's lingering in the background, but I don't know. It's just more about the grand. I think it characterizes the revolution and it gives a context for it and shows different things about it that are positive and negative. We can get into that once we get into the plot, but yeah, it's not the main thrust of the movie. It's more about this sort of like love triangle Mm -hmm. between three people who basically are trying to live their lives and keep getting disrupted by war. And you kind of have to do that to make people want to go see something. Um, Adjusted for inflation, this is still the eighth highest grossing film of all time. Um, Oh, wow. So people went out in droves to watch this, probably multiple times while I was in the theater, because movies used to sort of hang around the theaters longer. It's just fascinating to think that that many people would have gone out and shelled that money to see this, like, Russian historical history epic that wasn't even produced by a Russian director. It's, like, produced by these, like, Europeans. Maybe in a weird way they figured, like, well, I'm getting more of my money's worth because this thing is like four hours long, you know? (laughs) Okay, let's get into the plot a little bit. The framing device has Alec Guinness going to this, like, factory and singling out one of the workers and telling her that he knows her father, who who she's estranged from. And basically she does not believe him, so he goes into this very long story that ends up comprising the entire three hours of the film Mm -hmm. where he tells her that he is actually her uncle... And his brother was Omar Sharif, is the actor who plays him, who's a beautiful specimen. Like, what a gorgeous man. He plays the titular Dr. Zhivago. He's a medical doctor. He's kind of a scientist. And most importantly to the film, he's a poet. Uh, And he writes these, like, personal poems about his feelings and, like, his inner life and his romance with these two women. And that is sort of seen as a sin by the revolution that eventually springs up. Right, any, like, artistic expression or, yeah, it's, like, subverting the state, kind of. Right, because there's a very legit revolution that crops up in the middle of the movie where there's this, like, aristocracy that has so much more money than the people who are protesting in the streets. And their needs that they're protesting for are, like, justice, equality, and, like, Food. Food, yeah. <laughs> There's just like hundreds of people chanting in the streets for their basic right to like be able to eat to exist the next day. Uh, and meanwhile, we see inside at a party, Chivago himself is attending. There's all these like rich people who are just sort of like laughing off the chants and like mm-hmm. sort of ignoring them and like living this like luxurious life. That revolution that topples over that gap in wealth is very legitimate. But then we see it go a little too far where the revolution sort of tries to get rid of anything personal and anything you do is supposed to like serve the state and serve the people. Right. So like even him writing poems. Uh, is kind of a, like you said, a politically subversive act because it's a personal thing and not a thing for the Republic. I mean, while I was watching it too, I couldn't help but think about, you know, America and the wealth inequality to where it is and how like, you know, maybe it's time for an American revolution, but then maybe that could go like too far in one direction. Like there are like 
historical lessons to be learned. And I, I thought that was that was interesting too. But one line that struck out to me in regards to that was when Dr. Zhivago, he like goes to steal some firewood and one of the officers says like one person stealing firewood is like one thing, but then 5 million people doing it will like topple a city. And I think that was like the fear, basically like all these of uh, the masses get together and they can actually like fuck stuff up if they're like organized and that's like the fear of the state well like you're saying earlier like yeah maybe in america not everyone's getting served in the same way and something like this could be good for people who are like being left behind by the system but if you think about it like russia is such a massive continent so like to have all these people ruled by this one governing like ideology right or just one government even is near impossible not everyone's gonna get served not everyone's gonna like get their fair share there's large areas in russia where it's just like barren basically so you have like a few like major cities but they're like hundreds and hundreds of miles apart from each other and then you have these little towns and it's like how do you get that like organize like actually create a state that can serve that many people and america kind of has the same problem it's a vastly spread out country that basically their solution to that problem was just federalize like make smaller governments and then sort of link them together right Um, like states rights kind of deal but in this movie you see a lot of travel between cities like especially once war sort of leaves all these small towns um disrupted and destroyed uh, you see a lot of people heading to major epicenters like Moscow, and uh, there's a lot of just travel by train. Um, around the intermission segment, uh, I was actually thinking a lot of Snowpiercer, how, mm. like, they're stuck inside this, like, hermetic train car traveling for, like, it seems like years almost, just right. the way the movie edits it. And every time they open the door, it's just frozen snow, and there's just, like, no end in sight, and, like, the world is just, like, pretty much over. Yeah. And eventually they do get off the train, unlike in Snowpiercer, but it's a uh, interesting um, dynamic. I mean, that's a, a thing, not just in Dr. Zhivago, but a few of the other movies, too. Like, they really, like, portray the, like, Russian landscape in, like, a very realistic and, like, basically showing the, like, harshness of their, like, winter's... So I I don't know, like, that was another aspect of just, like, the barren but beautiful landscape of Russia is, like, a character of its own in, like, a few of these movies. And that landscape and, like, the threat of war that keeps coming up, that is, like, the villain in the film. There's a couple monstrous men. Uh, One's a revolutionary and one's, like, an aristocrat. So they kind of, like, demonize both sides of the playing field there in the mistress's life. But those are the things that keep disrupting the romance. Shivago has a wife who is of his class and he ends up falling in love with this like younger woman who is sort of like below him uh as as far as like class politics go but your typical like doctor nurse thing which you know they serve during the war together and they bond by seeing like all these like atrocities Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is that there's no love triangle like jealousy or like people arguing over who gets to be with this man who hey, he is a beautiful man he's worth arguing over yeah but uh instead you just see like war comes in and like throws everything out of whack where like he gets drafted against his will and has to leave his wife for like five years or like he comes back and his wife has been moved to another city and he has to like be with his mistress again just because she's the one that's there and his wife has no like anger over it it's like more anger at the war than the anger at their like love triangle you know what i'm saying Right, because a lot of times it isn't it's like the timing of things 
sometimes like that's what will kind of change anyone's life is just like meet the right person at the right time or right person at the wrong time and and so that's definitely like a central thing of the movie too yeah you're saying i mean when he first meets the mistress that he eventually falls in love with it's because she's been raped by like a and then, infamous sort of like aristocrat and then she shoots him yeah just pretty badass just yeah. like <laughs> walks into the party and just yeah, just shoots him right Sh- there. Shoots her rapist in a like room full of like hundreds of people and basically gets away with it because yeah. everyone knows he's guilty. Which is an interesting dynamic for him to meet her that way. Like they don't become romantic until it seems like a decade later. They have this like sort of shared villain that drifts in and out of their lives and comes back into play in a sort of a major way in the third act. But they don't really know each other until like the war sort of like throws them into each other's arms. The only other thing I really wanted to bring up was that Klaus Kinski is, like, super young in this movie and, like, a strange man. <laughs> he's he's just a weirdo in general, dude. Like, everything he's done. It's crazy that in a three-hour epic where you have, like, Omar Sharif and Alec Guinness, like, acting their asses off in this film, Klaus Kinski is, like, in his early 20s and basically steals the show with, like, five minutes of screen time. Like, he's an explosive presence in this film. And there's later movies like Agira, Wrath of God, and all the, like, you know, Herzog movies he did. He continued to steal the show. I almost didn't believe it was him at first, but, like, who else looks like that? <laughs> so, yeah, he's an odd-looking man. <laughs> well, um, did you have anything else to say about Chivago? Like, I was just impressed overall and like, how well-crafted it is as far as, like, those major, like, big epics were those big production kind of epics aren't really my thing i like i feel like a lot of times they're super bloated and but this is definitely up there just from a visual aspect like you're saying it looks gorgeous i really appreciated the editing and the direction and i do think you know everyone is like a good actor Mm -hmm. like i can't really fault any of the performances maybe it didn't quite knock it out the park for me because i still feel like probably because of the source material it felt a little bit bloated, I guess. So many characters over such a long period of time. So many wars. It's hard not to get chills, though, when you see those um, revolutionaries marching on the road, and there's, like, literally hundreds of people on camera on, like, a cleared-out city street. Like, there's something, like, that gives you goosebumps no matter what when you see that many people coming yeah, together totally. for one purpose. The next movie uh, on the list is Andrei Rublev. Not to be outdone, Tarkovsky made an even longer film with an even larger cast. Uh, than Zhivago. Uh, this was in 1966, right after Zhivago. This is Tarkovsky's religious epic. So this is a, a Russian man making a Russian film about a Russian icon painter. So this is a man who basically paints portraits of Jesus as like his passion and his art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this movie was controversial when it was released because basically Soviets wanted all like religion moved from like Russian heritage. And mm-hmm. Tarkovsky's specifically trying to say, like, Christianity is part of our heritage as a nation. And he's, like, basically making a political point in raising up this religious icon painter. And I don't think really it's specifically about... Well, obviously it's about that painter, but, you know, with Tarkovsky, I think he's always trying to get it. The big picture, and I think what he's really kind of driving home it's like basically about being an artist and like art kind of being born from like an imperfect world and the artist is like being against the state and conformity and and to go even like bigger than that just about the like human spirit and how it can like overcome in the face of adversity like these big grand things that i think he uses 
Rublev to get at some of those metaphorical, you know, themes. Well, Rublev is is kind of like a surrogate for him, right? Like, he's doing the same thing Rublev is, where he's, like, trying to make this grand piece, but trying to be kind of humble about it. Right. Like, Rublev is trying to honor God and faith without drawing attention to himself. Uh, The movie is set in the 15th century, and these sort of, like, monk-like painters that would paint the insides of churches and cathedrals and stuff. They were very concerned with not drawing attention themselves, but they were pretty much like the rock stars of like the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people all over Russia, who you see throughout the film, know his name. He's like become famous sort of despite himself. Whereas like this is an art form where if you look at Russian paintings, they're like super flat because they don't want to make realistic images of God and Christ. They're basically trying to abstract it because there's a humbleness to it. Like, you're saying, like, I'm not actually worthy to represent God in art. Which that eventually changed, though, right? During uh, romanticism and stuff, like, you started to see more, like, lifelike portraits Yeah, and you're talking about more, like, Italian and, like, French painters, though. Yeah, not specifically talking about Russian. Right. But that eventually, I'm saying, like, did change... Uh, I don't know if it changed in in Russia. And we'll see more of that when we get to Russian art uh, later in this conversation, uh, how the art changes over time. But in this movie, we have, like, basically this guy just sort of, like, traveling around in these major cities and not feeling worthy of painting these, like, giant things. And you have to kind of think that maybe Tarkovsky himself is talking about, like, how he's not worthy (laughs) to make this, like, grand political statement about, like, Russian art, but he just sort of, like, feels compelled to do it. And the movie talks about, like, an artist, like, compulsion to paint from the soul rather than for art or for money or for whatever like it's like supposed to be like something that comes from uh inside and not like some sort of like external like showing off the movie is like kind of fragmented and it's episodic and actually like rublev isn't in all of the scenes like right a lot of times he's not present at all it's not really about him it's about all the other stuff you're saying like he's used as a metaphor for these grander topics and you don't see him paint for like over an hour and a half right like it's a really long time before you see him paint and you don't see like a finished work of art from him until the end of the movie the very end the movie is all in black and white for three and a half hours and the last like minute and a half is his His paintings in full color. color yeah so i can't deny that it's like a beautiful film it's a tarkovsky like it it is a well-made beautiful film i think it's still like just something about it was impenetrable for me i couldn't quite get on board with it and to go back to dr javago and the editing and like the way tarkovsky will draw out these scenes and like not cut and we'll just have these really long takes it, it does add to the lyricism and the poetry of, of the image, but as a viewer, like, it is kind of a slog to get through. Whereas, like, Dr. Zhivago's edited so efficiently where it flies by. This did not feel like that. This felt like... It was a, it was a struggle. Like, honestly, it was, like, hard to watch this whole movie. And I do think some of the episodes worked better than others. I mean, anytime you have that episodic thing that's going to happen but i mean overall i it might be my least favorite thing i've seen from him actually well i'm gonna be honest up front here we watched five movies today three of them i really liked and two of them were directed by andre tarkovsky the two tarkovsky movies we watched for this episode sort of like soured a little bit of what i felt when i watched stalker and it might be just a, a problem of watching all these movies too quickly. His movies are languid. They're very image-focused. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite moments of the film actually reminded me of Stalker. There's, like, 
these pans across like tree roots and landscapes uh, from a hot air balloons perspective in some cases to get these like very high up shots. And there's really one beautiful shot of uh, white paint uh, being dispersed in water. And kind of like in Stalker, when you're looking at the, the images that are composed under a shallow surface of water, you're not even really sure what you're looking at at first. Yeah. Like, it takes a minute for your eyes to adjust. And in those moments, I got the stalker feeling that I wanted out of this. But for the most part, I just found this to be like very hard to get through and just not engaging in any way. It's an eight vignette story over three and a half hours mm-hmm. without any real clear point to it other than what i was saying earlier like the context they got the movie banned in soviet russia and had all these like different versions of the films cut down and censored like that's an interesting extra contextual aspect right it's always the meta context or like the deeper meaning the courage of the artist to explore the unknown like that sort of thing i feel like it's very central to this movie but when you're watching it i don't know man it it's really hard to be so critical of tarkovsky like we're supposed to be like lovers of film and like Tarkovsky is supposed to be like the pinnacle of like a certain type of like artsy kind of filmmaker. And yet I've seen five of his movies now and I'm not as blown away by them as I thought I would be. And that's like kind of disappointing to say, but like there's moments in all of them that really like I'll never forget like specific moments and scenes but none of them as like a whole piece of work would i say are like like masterpieces for me yeah like individual scenes it's their images even yeah and images and moments there's great moments but it's hard to say like it seems blasphemous to even like question that well we're also watching this 50 years later after hearing this is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time this is important art that expectation is sort of unfair on his work like it feels like he is making some personal like artistic expression of like who he is and his philosophy and all this stuff to have that held up on such a high pedestal it's almost like impossible not to be disappointed (laughs) you're like you're told this is like some from some people like the greatest filmmaker of all time it's hard to like not put too much expectation on what you're going to get out of that but but see for other like ingmar bergman for me is another one but his films actually do connect with me on that level persona is like a impossible work to deny like that is a powerful piece of yeah per, uh, dude persona seven seal like wild strawberries he has like a ton of masterpiece but it's weird for tarkovsky there's like something getting in the way and maybe it's like over intellectualizing it might be a cultural thing as cultural well. th- yeah like I, I don't quite know what it is but yeah there's something that's keeping me from like truly connecting with some of his work what i will say on like a positive spin on it i can see works that i love personally being reflected in his movies and in this film in particular this kind of feels like the devils in that scale in like religious scope Mm -hmm. but without the fun (laughs) like i'm kind of a trashy like populist audience i need that like fun um, i mean i i lean that way as well i think that's like where we're coming from i like those kind of films i think a little bit more than you do the like philosophical meditative sort of thing but i don't know it just this one especially is like a perfect example i just couldn't quite get into it uh scorsese's silence is another film i would reference i don't know if you've seen that one yet it came out late 2016 that one has this same like 
seeking humility and like maintaining your faith in the face of doubt in andre rublev and in silence you see somebody who feels like they're charged with a mission from god to sort of like honor his name on earth and you see them push and push and push even though at every step of the way they're both questioning whether they're worthy to carry out that mission and whether God is even there listening mm-hmm. to them. Uh, sort of like Bergman's like the silence, silence of, of God. God yeah. Like that's a, a common theme in these like giant works. Which, you know, that like always reaches into like, who are we? Why are we here? And all that yeah. stuff. And it's interesting, but it does get a little like hard to latch onto when that that's all there is. I feel like Scorsese and Silence does a better job of like holding my attention and making me feel that emotionally. But I'm also watching that as someone in the 2010s watching a filmmaker I've grown up with uh, in the same like American culture as me reaching for these issues. So maybe I'm just missing some sort of link there, but there's no way that silence could exist in the way that it does now without Scorsese having seen Andre Rublev and all these other films that came before it, you know? Terrence Malick is another filmmaker who I'm not a huge fan of, but I could definitely see the influence of Tarkovsky on like his work. Like I could see how he's influenced a whole generation of like filmmakers. But yeah, there is something watching it now in 2017. It's kind of hard to get fully engaged with. I actually think Malick is a pretty good representation of like Tarkovsky's worst qualities right like, really beautiful imagery and just like nothing for me to like care about and there are some people who think malik is the greatest living filmmaker the like kind of litmus test is tree of life yeah like if you think tree of life is like the greatest movie ever like it's so deep and poignant you're definitely on one side of the argument i personally like thought it was garbage i have this thing with malik and it's coming to be my thing with tarkovsky as well where i feel like wiley e. coyote these images and these beautiful like artful constructions keep pulling me back in even though i know i'm not gonna enjoy myself and i keep (laughs) just running into that concrete wall but i mean this movie has certain segments i think are better than others uh there's this really one beautifully constructed segment just about casting an iron bell in the ground that stuck out to me as like kind of the climax of the film or like really driving at like what Tarkovsky was trying to say because you have this like young kid who doesn't have any experience with putting a broken bell back together leading this group of men like kind of blindly just making it up as it goes along but then it works and that's the bell rings and it's this like magnificent moment and that I think is like we were talking about like the struggle to like be an artist and you're kind of in the dark and just trying to you're just going blindly into this thing and trying to figure it out and then sometimes it just works that to me represented like probably how Tarkovsky views being a true artist and that's how Rublev goes through his own problems throughout the movie he like doesn't feel like he's worthy uh he builds this um like mural inside of a church he's basically tasked with drawing um the final judgment like uh revelations and mm-hmm. supposed to be like this hellish images about like the uh, about armageddon pretty much um and he refuses to he doesn't want to scare people into religion he paints a feast instead to sort of like welcome people in and then in that act he gets steamrolled by an invasion from the Tartars. Uh, And he feels like he caused all this pain and he actually murders a person during that sequence. Mm -hmm. And he goes into this silent 
period of reflection and redemption. And then he sees this kid who, like you said, cast this bell, basically just following his intuition. Intuition, yeah. Uh, and it, it comes off beautifully. And, and when it comes off, the kid collapses and weeps. And Rublev sees himself in this kid who's like in over his head making this grand art that's supposed to like honor God. And the movie really does come to a head there. And I really think that last segment does elevate the movie, but I might have been too far gone by the time I got there. Like I might have been abandoned too many times to like right. really feel the emotional impact of that. The different episodes sort of meanders and it touches on all those themes. And then, like you said, that very last scene, it really does. You finally see like, oh, okay, this is like a perfect example of what he's like trying to get at here. But it's like, damn, I, it took three and a half hours to get here. And it takes more than just our time as an audience. When we talked on the Stalker episode, I raised a concern that like people were dying of cancer to serve this uh, famous director's vision. You know, yeah, uh, a lot of the crew got sick just because they were like filming in these like nuclear environments. In this movie, we see uh, a cow set on fire, a horse stabbed through the chest, uh, possibly a dog beating, and it's like real cruelty. There's this really fucked up violence, like grand scale violence to the Tartar invasion that does feel like true to war and like how ugly war is, and it is serving the, the pieces and art. But yeah, like, real-world evil was committed to, like, serve this man's vision. And I, I really just never think art is ever important enough to, like, justify that kind of stuff. I guess I look at this stuff as frivolous entertainment a little See, bit. if you're, like, a musician, and you know, like, the whole thing, uh, musicians that self-destruct and they die young and they destroy their bodies, or, like, even, like, pro wrestlers, too, that die oh, young. Oh, yeah, totally. They're killing themselves for their art, but it's different because it's personal. It's them doing it to themselves, but... Filmmaking is such a communal, like, effort. You need tons of other people. And so to, like, inflict damage on other people seems, like, a little more immoral than doing it to yourself. Yeah, it's, it's a collaborative art. You're supposed to take care of your, like, crew, you know? I guess they believed in him so much as a director that they're willing to, like, go through hell for him, but... But let's not shit on this, like, beloved director any longer. Yeah, dude. We'll get back to him in a minute. The next movie on the list is something that I really liked that I had seen, uh, I think, summer last year. This was Ivan Vasilievich Changes Profession. Also sometimes billed as Ivan Vasilievich Back to the Future. Back to the Future, yeah. Uh, this is a movie from 1973. It's a straightforward comedy. It's like a screwball comedy. Yeah. And it's from Russia, too. Which I don't, I, This is the only screwball Russian comedy I can say I've ever seen in my life. I don't know about you. The movie bills itself as... Not science fiction, not quite realistic, and not strictly historical. But there is a history element to it. Yeah, because uh, you have I, Ivan the Terrible comes back to like modern day Russia. The setup to the movie is like this sort of Jerry Lewis type builds a time machine in his apartment called the Apparatus. And when he turns it on to show his landlord and this thief that happens to be around, he shows them how the apparatus works, and his cat ends up running into Ivan the Terrible's time, and into his Ivan the Terrible's, like, chamber. Uh, that's, they, why I, that's why I knew I was going to like this movie, because in the first five minutes, there's a scene of vacuuming up the cat, <laughs> which is just hilarious. Like, So they chase the cat, and basically the main setup is that Ivan the Terrible looks exactly like this guy's landlord, uh, and they both look exactly like John Cleese to me. So they swap yeah. places, and there's sort of like this like very subtle political 
satire about how like landlords prey on people the same way that like dictators do but like the modern landlord is like terrible at being a dictator in ivan the terrible's time and ivan the terrible doesn't fit into our time either like he's too much of a demanding asshole but he does all right he does better (laughs) yeah he does a better job so maybe the joke there is that landlords are like tyrants but they're like not even as good as yeah they're like (laughs) shitty at it yeah did you like this movie? Yes. Okay. What I what I liked about it is that it reminds me of the French New Wave, which is why I thought that you would think it was interesting. Yeah, the like the way they speed up the camera during the really slapstick chase scenes, like it reminded me of like Benny Hill. Oh, and Scooby Doo as well. Scooby-Doo, yeah, which I think was probably riffing on Benny Hill. But you have like all these soldiers chasing the thief <laughs> and the landlord through the castle. You're just expecting like yakety sacks to oh, totally, start playing. Yeah. I, I found it to actually be very funny. Like, I don't know, um, as far as, like, the version I watched, like, I was wondering how much of the dialogue, like, was correctly translated, translated from... Yeah. But the reason I think it works so well is, like, first of all, the dialogue is witty and funny. And also, most of the humor, though, is visual. So you don't really have to even... Like, you could probably watch this without the subtitles and still get a lot of laughs out of it yeah, like, it's just so ridiculous like you like, said in the earlier like he's vacuuming up his apartment in one of the first scenes and he vacuums up these like stop motion animated cigarettes by mistake so you like the shoelaces are yeah. stop motion too and then he sucks up his cat in the vacuum and his cat is kind of like this troublemaker that runs around his apartment uh and just even like having this time travel machine in an apartment and it looks like such bullshit like whenever you look at like those like 50s sci-fi movies that are just like bleep bloop machines yeah it's like the most complex like Susie and bleep bloop machine in his apartment <laughs> yeah that like basically wipes out the whole building's electricity or whatever and that's how he gets in trouble with the landlord but yeah once he gets them swapped he can't get them back for a while until like uh he like reconfigures the machine he like blows a fuse or something it was like yeah really like engaging like music too and like it was very meta like there's tons of breaking the fourth wall where characters totally. were like Look directly into the camera. And his wife, uh, the scientist's wife, plays an actress. So you see a movie set being filmed where right. she's singing a song about how modern love is like empty feeling. And the actress and the scientist are having like an empty marriage uh, in the sort of the same way that she's expressing that frustration. And th- there's uh, other weird visual gags too. Like I noticed her hair changes like throughout the whole movie and it's revealed like she wears wigs. Wigs, yeah. Or whatever, and there's another scene I thought was pretty clever where I'm assuming it's a painting of Ivan the Terrible's death or whatever, and it's hanging up in the guy's apartment, and he looks at it, and I was thinking, like, if this was like a Back to the Future scenario where this might impact the past or whatever like that would totally mess up the, we, like timeline. we don't want Ivan the Terrible to live longer <laughs> right it would like mess up the timeline but I guess the movie kind of deals with that by, like, making it all a dream. Yeah, there is that shitty, like, oh, none of this actually happened kind of reveal. But I, but I see, it, I like it in this movie because the movie's bookended in black and white. Mm-hmm. So the first scene's in black and white and the last in black and white. Everything else in color. And so that at least gives it some visual representation of, like, it was all a dream. It yeah. didn't feel like I was... It didn't feel like a cheat to you. Right, I wasn't, like, duped. It's like, yeah. oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it was in black and white in the beginning and now we're back. 
The black and white felt like a direct nod to French New Wave to me as well. Like, just that heightened visual play. I mean, this is like a decade after that movement, but you could still feel the influence in there. Also, uh, it reminded me a lot of, like, Leslie Nielsen comedies. Like, Zazz. Like, it's a gag a minute, like, very fast-paced. But, like, matched with, um, do you know Daisy's that, like, check uh, comedy? Absurdist mm-hmm. comedy? I'm no. gonna make you watch that someday. But, yeah, there's, like, something very artful about it where it's not just, like, empty jokes. Right. But it still has that Leslie Nielsen, like, rapid fire just gags. Like, goofs and gags throughout the entire thing. No, and I, you had mentioned him earlier, but when I was watching, I wrote in big letters, like, Jerry Lewis. Because that's Definitely. what it really felt to me. Like, it, it really, it's, like, straight up, like, Nutty Professor kind of in the beginning. Like, he's kind of a nerdy like making this time machine but uh no i i actually was very surprised how much i enjoyed this it was nice reading too that it's still held in like high regard in like russian cinema like it's still a fan favorite kind of and like no it's it's totally a fun Fun watch, dude. I really enjoyed it. I really want to know if that Back to the Future thing was like an American release after the time travel boom that probably came up after Back to the Future in America. I've billed this movie when I reviewed it as Ivan Vasilovich Changes Profession, which just seemed like the like real title. Like Back to the Future seems kind of like a weird like add-on later. Um, and I mean, I think Changes Profession is a much more... It's a more clever way to put it right. than just Back to the Future, like... You see two Ivans who, like, switch jobs from dictator to landlord, and the movie kind of makes a joke out of, like, how those things aren't very different. I also wanted to give props to, um, I don't know the actor's name, but whoever plays the, like, the burglar, his, like, facial expressions just made me laugh. Just, like, looking at him make these funny faces, like, (laughs) and that, that too reminded me of, like, Jerry Lewis. He's the comedic relief sometimes in those, like, scenes that are actually set in the past. Uh, where, like, the uh, landlord seems, like, in over his head a little bit. So, yeah, both him and the scientists kind of play these, like, dual Jerry Lewis roles, but they're just both, like, separated by centuries once the time machine fucks everything up. Another thing to mention, too, is, like, what adds to the absurdity is the fact that they're all played by the same actors, which I guess, I guess makes sense, but it just adds to, like, the... What's going on? You look just like Ivan the Terrible, and I can't tell that you switched places. Yeah, even his wife doesn't see the difference. Like, the wife of the landlord just sees Ivan the Terrible as her husband. And it's an absurdist comedy. Like, there's a lot of, like, jumps in logic to latch onto it. But when something's this goofy, like, it's easy to get on its wavelength, you know? Even with that cultural difference. Like, comedies really don't translate across borders all that well. True. But I thought this movie was very funny, like, both times I watched it. I agree with you about the foreign comedies, because I've found that, like, there's certain countries where I just get their sense of humor. Like, I really like, like, Scandinavian kind of, like, Norwegian or Dutch. Very dark. Yeah. yeah. I was not expecting to dig a Russian comedy. Just all the other films I've seen from Russia, like you were saying, tend to be, like, kind of dark and somber. And, and so I was like, oh, how how's a comedy going to be? From? And I was surprised at, like, how silly it was. Well, speaking of dark and somber, back to the Tarkovsky talk. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next movie is The Mirror from 1975. I enjoyed this one way more than Andrei Rublev. This one is a lot less dry than Rublev. Uh, the Mirror is sort of the stream of conscious reflection of Tarkovsky's memory 
memories of World War II, where he basically plays he plays the main character as himself in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even a scene early in the film where he's talking on the phone with his own mother, and the movie drifts through his apartment or house and there's a poster on the wall of andre rublev just sort of like this is my life and the movie is very reflective on the past of his life with his mother during the war his getting drafted in the war as a child if Mm -hmm. i'm not mistaken and just the same stuff you see in stalker where there's just like these images that no one could explain my favorite moments in the movie are kind of the same i was saying with rublev just like these like isolated images where like his mother's washing her hair uh there's another one where she's floating above her bed Mm -hmm. Uh, that's just like a gorgeous dreamlike like lynchian kind of image but at the same time you have this like two hour movie without a clear narrative that drifts between different times it drifts between black and white imagery color sepia tone yeah it's another one that takes a lot of effort to pay attention to it like i had to lock my phone away the same way i did with stalker but i liked it more than rublev I'll, i'll give you that I, I actually would go a step further for me, and this is probably my favorite Tarkovsky that I've seen. I can't meet you there. I think Stalker's a better film. And, and the reason I say that is because, like I mentioned earlier with him, I find like specific moments are what I always remember from his film. And for me, Mirror has the most striking moments of any film. And I think you named a couple, like her wa- the mother washing her hair, floating, but there's also really beautiful scene with just wind it's just wind going through grass you know what i mean like so wind plays a a pretty major role in this movie in the same way it doesn't stalker right like there's a scene where the the guy who plays the stalker shows up and kind of hits on his mom like he's playing this doctor that's sort of drifting through town and he just wants to flirt with a beautiful woman for, with a beautiful woman for a few minutes right uh and he goes to leave and the wind stops him which is the same dynamic in stalker where uh, nature is sort of communicating with people and like saying something like yeah, something intangible turn, turn around go back right uh, and the wind blows a few times I'm not sure even exactly what moment you're talking about because there's this repeated image where wind blows and like knocks these objects off a table well yeah I was speaking to the the one you were talking about with the traveler that stops and talks to her and then the wind kind of turns him around or makes him think twice about like oh maybe i should go back there but and, and before that even happens he says something like uh do you ever wonder about places being aware feeling perceiving which felt like kind of like the whole driving force of stalker to yeah me. like it, i we were talking about in stalker how like i didn't really fully understand the movie and i felt like i needed to see more tarkovsky movies to like give it context mm-hmm. and that whole like respect for nature and like that natural like communication right. and like nature personified that definitely carried over into um, the mirror. Yeah, I think thematically they are very similar. An- another image I would highlight is the burning of the, I guess it's like the farmhouse or yeah, it's a pretty hay major, house or whatever. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Like those, overall, it's still not a perfect film. Uh, I could see the argument why Stalker is the more quintessential, like Tarkovsky, but the moments in Mirror like that are just so like iconic. For me, that like I do think it's one of, if not his greatest work, just for those moments because they're really astounding. Could you give like a plot synopsis to this movie if there's like a gun to your head? Like, 
I mean, it, it's kind of it's, just like a drift in and out of like memories and dreams and things. But see, I I think that in a way that that's how memory actually works. Yeah. And so if it was like a like I don't like a Forrest Gump, like I'm gonna tell you the story of my life, <laughs> and then we're gonna start from when I was a kid, and then teenager, and then move in a linear way. Yeah, that's one way to do it, but that's not how memory actually works. And so it's kind of seems like Tarkovsky, like going into his life, but it's a free form memories that like bring up other memories that might have happened at a later date. But that's how like the brain works. So he seems, it seems like a more true vision or true idea of like how we remember things. And it just seems like him like just non-linear you know just going into his life i mean i I don't think tarkovsky's forrest gump would be a problem like i think that kind of form might help a little bit like this movie felt just as long as andre rublev to me even though it's like well over an hour shorter than that movie like this one actually is a reasonable length it's an hour and 40 something minutes Oh, just like a normal movie time. But it's so stretched out and so non-linear. Um, I mean, it's that, supposed that to be like felt a dream. like forever, yeah. Like but a that, dream. The kind of, the stuff that we're sort of complaining about, when you really think about it, like, with dreams too, like, you could have a dream that probably only lasted 30 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. but it felt like three hours. And that's what his films feel like, like. More than any other director I can think of, he is able to actually get across like a dreamlike. David state. Lynch is another one that comes to mind for sure. Yeah, uh, but that's not even yeah. my favorite Lynch stuff. Like people would say, like Inland Empire is like dream logic purely, but I like Lynch with a little more. Like I'd be more willing to go back and watch Elephant Man a second time before I would watch Inland Empire. Because right, it does like take more effort or something. Yeah. But but yeah, it's it's good to use those influences to warp cinema, but not necessarily do I want to like sit down and watch something like this all the time where it, like it, it takes a concentrated effort. I think Tarkovsky is a hundred percent and like he's going all the way mm-hmm. with it basically. And I do think like to kind of appeal to modern viewers, it would help to have some some kind Plot of genre, genre, or genre, or something. Which Stalker is a sci-fi movie that vaguely resembles Wizard of Oz. Like there is some kind of like anchor to it that is not necessarily represented in the mirror. The mirror is like more that like um, it's kind of a cliche to say these terms, but like tone poem or like pure cinema mood mm-hmm. piece. Like this is actually that. Like it that, is. that those terms get thrown at works that like use those influences like i'm thinking of like last year's the fits is another good example where it like uses those like art movie like slow drifts as an influence but actually like sticks to a sort of like recognizable movie structure but and even in this one like tarkovsky's own father reads his personal poetry over the film um and it doesn't necessarily inform anything on like a narrative level but it's just part of that like gestalt of like mood and tone and drifts and memories and dreams like it all comes together in this sort of like loose swirl of ideas almost to the point where i want to say that stalker is actually a more historically minded movie the stalker has nothing to do with our real world it's this fantasy piece mm-hmm. but there's all these like tactile leftovers of the war like bombshells nuclear bombs tanks that have sort of been overgrown and taken back and reclaimed by nature. This movie has, like, actual war footage in it, like, bombs being dropped, and these, like, kids sort of being, like, inducted into the war and, like, taught how to shoot rifles. There's, like, these really insane shots of hot air balloons, which made me wonder if 
this movie and Rublev had something about hot air balloons in Russian history. I just do not know yeah. context for. But those things are so loosely assembled and not really commented upon that, like, as an outsider, I felt more of, like, the historical aspect of Stalker than I did the historical aspect of this movie. Like, this felt, felt more, like, deeply personal to me. I think it is. Yeah. Like you said, even though it's using the historical footage, it's about his personal experience during the war. So we, we don't, we're not really even given any context for what specific battle this might be or what moment. It's just like newsreel clips put out there. Like I said, I it sounds like I was probably more high on this one than you were, but um, I think that just has to do with like, I think I appreciate the like tone poem kind of thing. You have more of a patience for it than I do. I I like it when it's tethered to something. Like, I can't follow it when it's just completely adrift. Uh, Except for moments that jump out at you. Like, the the house burning um, or the, the washing of the hair or the levitation. Like, these are moments that will likely stick with me for a long time. But there are also, like, 90% of the film I won't hold on to. Like, there's shots of literally just Tarkovsky's young surrogate uh, flipping the pages of a book. And it's yeah. like, do I need to watch that for two minutes? Am I going to like retain this information in any way? Does it mean anything to me? Probably not. And maybe as time goes on, I will like reflect on this more positively. But I don't think the way to go about these things is to watch three Tarkovsky movies in a month. Like right. This might have been like the worst possible way to get into him as a director. I, w- I would agree with that. We totally like went off the deep end, just like, I'm going to watch all these movies in a very short period of time. But with meditative work like that it's better to like give it some time to you know marinate as a, as a sci-fi fan i would totally watch solaris just to see what our tarkovsky like straightforward sci-fi film is like because even even stalker even though i could consider it sci-fi fantasy it's not quite like straightforward in that way probably uh solaris has more of a straightforward sci-fi element to it than even Stalker does. So I'm not I'm not saying I'm brushing him off in general, but I do need a Tarkovsky break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, man. I, I just I think it was good just from like an educational perspective. It, it was a huge blind spot and now I've seen three of his movies. Um but yeah maybe it's time to pump the brakes a little bit. Uh, but the next movie in our list and the final film is another jump uh, this is from 2002. So all the other movies we've talked about are from the 60s and 70s. Uh, this is Russian Ark. It is a sort of technical feat that was filmed in a Russian museum called the Hermitage. Uh, probably one of the largest collections of like European art in the world. I think it's in St. Petersburg. Assembled initially by Catherine the Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been around a long time. This was also an innovation in that it was one of the first like Steadicam movies. Uh, we're very used to like smoothed out handheld camera stuff where that is basically replacing um, the old track shot. So you have this like mount that smooths out the motion of someone hand holding a camera. This movie, early 2000s, very early in like digital photography, takes that new technology and pushes it as far as it could possibly go. It is a single shot for 90 something minutes through the museum, casts of hundreds, kind of like Zhivago, where you see these like huge ballroom scenes with just like so many extras yeah, all in period I, costumes. Yeah, I had read 2,000 actors involved if, in this production. If you think of not just the actors, but like the wig and hairstylist and like uh, all the technical makeup. stuff too, yeah. like the camera operators. It's a movie that took four years of planning. Uh, the museum was only willing to shut down for one day for them to film it. So they had one day to get the 90-minute shot perfect. Uh, and, you know, that takes all setting up and everything like that. It took four attempts. 
uh, and they got it on the fourth one in the 90 minutes. But the first few, they like five, 10, 15 minutes in, you know, somebody happened. tripped over a wire yeah. or like, I think they ran out of like a battery pack or something. But swiping aside for a second, all of the technical feat of this film, which could easily like overpower the narrative of like what this movie is. Yeah. It's a really beautiful art piece. Like, yes, this is the same kind of vibe as the mirror where you're drifting through instead of like decades you're drifting through centuries of russian history uh, in a museum setting and seeing all these different like i said catherine the great peter the great like all these different historical figures but it's not really explained in any kind of like classroom beat by beat kind of way you just see them as images and as part of like russian heritage and everything comes together in this giant like dreamlike drift I was very impressed by this movie. You had seen it long before I had. You must have recommended this to me probably like five, six years ago, and I really shouldn't have waited as long as I did. Like, this was a really impressive film. If you're trying to get someone to watch it, you have to mention the technical aspect. Those one-take sort of shots are like one of the most... um, It it like draws a lot of attention to itself. I mean, it is a technical marvel to be able to pull off something like that, and I do think that that has a lot to do with why this is a great movie. Like, just from the technical aspect, like, that puts it up already to a high level. But then with the costumes and the music and the art and just everything else about it, this is probably my favorite movie of the five that we watched. And the one that I think, like, actually encompasses, like, Russian history better than any of the other ones from the sense that, like, history is kind of a continuous flow we tend to think of history as being like this happened then this happened like point a to point b but it's actually like a living thing yeah we're part of it yeah you're a part and that's what i think this movie does so well and why the one take shot is like essential to what it means as a movie that's one thing i i kept thinking about was like what would change if this movie was shot normally, if we didn't do the one take, mm-hmm. if it was just a series of scenes, like would it have the same impact? And I don't think that it would, And but I don't think it's just like a cheat to like basically show off like, oh, we did this technical, like marvelous thing. Like, ah, oh, look at us. Like, no, the that technical aspect has a point. And I think the point is like what I was saying earlier with that's how history actually works. Well, it's not a series of like scenes like you expect in a movie that lead to a climax and then the movie's over. It's like a living, breathing thing that never stops that we're like always a part of. And that's like why you, the one take is so essential. Do you feel like you learned anything about any of those specific scenes though? Not I really. I went no. in ignorant. This is the last movie I watched in the bunch. So I watched four movies on Russian history before I came here. And I still feel like I, I know jack shit. Right. And like watching this, I was still like, well, I don't know what that represents on like a cultural level, but it is still hitting me with a harder impact than it did in the movies that were more straightforward. Like this is about civil war or this is about this dictator yeah like, or this is the bolshevik revolution right and i'm not a huge like russian history buff but there are parts where you get the sense of like moods changing like war and yeah so it's a much more like subtle again like how i think actual history works like if you're a russian person watching this movie i think it would stir up a lot of emotions without like hitting on specifics well it's it's partly funded by um russian history and heritage foundations honestly it would have to be because this is not a commercial film like 
this is a thing that's going to cost a lot of money and not make a lot of it back. Uh, so it's like for the arts and it's for the people. Um, and I feel like it's doing the same thing Tarkovsky was doing with Mirror, where it's taking parts of like history and like national events and making it personal. But it's also making it personal in like a nationwide sense. Like it's like this is who we are as a people mm -hmm. uh, instead of like these are the facts of what happened. It's more of like a heritage of culture. Like it's about the different movements of culture. Like you said, it's not this is what this scene is and this is what this document was signed in this year. Or this dictator was knocked over by this revolution. It's more like these are how the eras have changed over time. And you do get a, a sense of like how the centuries have shifted culturally. Um, and it does feel almost as personal as the mirror, just like on a grander scale. Um, and I'm sure this director is probably influenced by Tarkovsky. Like we were saying earlier, like yeah, this art is built on his back. But I, I just connected with this on like a, a more like readily available way. But also like like a Tarkovsky, like we we're talking about those beautiful moments. You know, like there's a lot of just breathtaking grand scenes, like. In the very beginning where they finally enter the main, like, ballroom area. And you're just, like, struck by, like, all these actors and all these, like, beautiful costumes. And just the grand scale of it. And then having these, like, ghosts sort of lingering around, too, was something I thought was interesting. Like... Well, I think that's what saves the movie for me. Not that the technical feat of it wouldn't have been, like, impressive no matter what. But mm -hmm. what makes it an engaging film is what I was kind of talking about with Mirror earlier, how there's no, like, genre or, like, recognizable anchor. This movie is also a ghost story. It's about yep. these two ghosts that wake up in this afterlife. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. Uh, one is a Frenchman who suddenly speaks Russian all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. uh, and you watch him talk shit about how Russians are lazy and have no culture of their own and have stolen everything they've ever created from like European influences. And you basically watch him get proved wrong through this like mm -hmm. drift through the museum and drift through the centuries. And it's so much more interesting than if it had been like a guided tour of like, this is what Catherine the Great did at this time. Uh, oh, that would have been unbearable. Like. It would have been beautiful still visually, but uh, the idea of building a narrative around this ghost. Um, and he even has his own rules. Like uh, the movie is filmed through a first person perspective, kind of like that. Uh, what was that movie last year? Har I'm trying not to call it Harvey Danger. I don't know. It's like a first person um, oh, video um, game movie. Hardcore Henry. Hardcore Henry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's filmed in the same style where like everything you see is the camera's eye is the main character, right? Uh, and nobody interacts with the POV of him except for the French ghost mm. because he initiated contact. Later, the French ghost initiates contact with this blind woman who's appreciating statues by touching them. Uh, and once he interacts with her, more people in the scenario start denying him access to certain areas or, like, telling him to move along or, like, mm -hmm. you don't belong here. So there is this sort of, like, logic of how to navigate this ghost world to it on top of the Russian historical aspect. Like, it's not just a strict history lesson. There's, like, a narrative element to it as well that I think makes the movie so much more interesting. Yeah, it, it does make it a lot more interesting. Kind of like in Beetlejuice, where, like, they get the guide to, the, like, the afterlife as soon as they die, you know? Well, I was also thinking about uh, Beloved while I was watching this. You know, that's a theme in Beloved. is like, ghosts are kind of, like, a place has like it's ghost that like tells a story yeah and like in that sense like he he's like a ghost stuck in this like place that he doesn't really know but 
It's like a part of him. It's a country he's visited, so he has existed there. And the idea of Beloved is that once something happens somewhere, it's always happened there. And it's always like part of it. And And that's what it felt like. Yeah. And you see all these like centuries overlapping. Like you see Catherine the Great as a young woman and as an old woman. And they both exist in the same space because there is no difference really. Like the Hermitage has been around and all this history is part of it physically all at the same time. And it is like a beautifully lyrical like poetic movement I, I really did feel it in this movie where in the other yeah, movies like I, f- I didn't feel it you know this episode is about movies about Russian history then for me like this is the best on our list like yeah it really knocked it out of the park for me yeah like okay Zhivago has like the romanticism to it that makes it like easy to latch on to and Ivan Vasilievich has the humor that makes it easy to enjoy and those are both like highly enjoyable films but I don't know if they mean anything in contextualizing Russian history as a subject the way that Russian Ark does like Russian Ark feels like the Russian history movie and we've yeah. only watched five samples I feel like these. This was a good selection to like, sort of like, like a starter pack on the topic. Like maybe yeah. there are other ones we missed, but I feel like these are pretty essential to it. Um, and this one just felt like it kind of solidified everything the other movies were doing. It's got honestly more humorous moments in it than any other movie besides uh, besides Ivan Vasilyev. Yeah, we haven't really touched on that, but it is funny. Yeah, the French just... guy is played like this kind of asshole, and <laughs> yeah. he's kind of the butt of the joke. At all times. And he hits on women, too. So there's a little bit of Chivago in there, too. Like, there's a little romanticism in him, like, sort of flirting with women throughout the centuries as he, like, gawks at... Which I, which I think is also a subtle jab at just, like, that French stereotype, you know? But, no, I agree with you. This this was nice to, like, after watching the other four movies and then watching this one, it just felt like kind of they had finally got it right right i guess and this is a huge jump this is like four decades after the one we'd seen before it so um it makes sense that all that information would inform this movie in like a uh cohesive way you know right i will say the director did make a movie in the louvre called francophonia like two years ago it's really very good so we should probably watch that as well dude i definitely want to see that is it a similar kind of setup you were saying earlier like the one shot is like important to its dna right this one has more cuts but i have heard from people who like russian arc Uh, actually my friend over at the crushed celluloid podcast uh cole uh Mm -hmm. he said that francophonia is actually a better movie okay which is a mighty high bar to clear yeah no i I I definitely i definitely will check that out yeah well i mean that about wraps it up for me as far as these five movies go yeah I would recommend all of them, except maybe if you're going to watch the Tarkovsky movies, don't watch them in a row. And yeah. if you're going to skip one, skip Andre Rublev. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I think The Mirror and uh, Stalker are two pretty good places to start. I mean, Rublev has a lot of good like historical context in itself, just because it was banned and had all these different cuts. The same way The Devils had, this, had like a similar like post-production history. But um, I don't know. I think I, more than anything else, though, like... You should just watch Russian Ark. If you haven't seen it, like, it is so worth the watch. I, I, I would probably agree that that's the best movie on here. It seems like a uh, knock to Zhivago and Ivan Vasilievich, because I like both of those movies a lot, but maybe mm. Russian Ark is, like, the most impressive feat, no matter what. Like, that is, like, a movie that should be watched. 
Agreed. So around the time this episode comes out, I'm actually going to be guesting on a buddy's podcast. I'm going to be on the We Love to Watch podcast talking about Xanadu, the uh, (laughs) Olivia Newton-John musical. So yeah, coming out the same week you hear this, go check out We Love to Watch. They are based in Chicago and California right now, so they're like split across the country, and we had a really fun time talking about ELO and disco and... Uh, uh, I wish I could have gotten in on that, dude. I'd fucking love me some ELO. Well, if you ever want to do a Skype uh, episode, Peter from that show said he would definitely love to guest on here, so we okay. should probably figure something out. And we'll come back to you in a couple weeks. Uh, We're going to be talking about record store comedies in Britney's movie Attic and Metairie next time we record one of these. And we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.